Okay, if you've seen today's clip length, uh, you might be surprised that today's clip is really only about two minutes long. But in order to give you that two minutes, I have to give you about 30 minutes of precursor story. It's the story of Shazam, which is the not the excellent movie, but also the uh, music identification app that was eventually acquired by Apple a few years ago. Um, I'm going to link in the show notes one of the stories recently. Shazam recently turned 20 years old, so it's a 20-year-old app. So we're still on the theme of older business, older tech businesses and learning uh, stories from them. Uh, it's 20 years old, and I love the comment that was on top of Hacker News. Shazam is one of the very few apps in the past 20 years that still wows me. I have no idea how the tech works, and I even sort of like not knowing, to be honest. It's one of the very few apps out there that still exists in a magical way to me. I'm constantly impressed with how fast and easy it works, even with very obscure music. What an amazing app. And I think part of me becoming a developer and, and uh, appreciating tech is we should know how to do things that were done 20 years ago like just fundamentally, right? And Shazam is one of those things that was just so advanced and so ahead of its time and yet still possible that uh, it deserves to be studied more and it isn't studied very well. The second thing that's going to be noteworthy about this podcast is uh, it comes from an unusual source for me. Uh, it's not something I usually dabble in, but it comes from the Tony Robbins podcast. Um, it stands to reason that Tony Robbins is a very good speaker. Therefore, uh, he would be a very good podcaster, but... Uh, it's it's a new it's new ground for me. I am not used to this. Anyway, here's the story of Shazam. And the first person we're going to interview uh, is a person you don't know the person, but I bet you've used the product it's called Shazam. How many have Shazam on your phone? The man who created this product, when he came up with this product, it was impossible. Everyone said it was impossible. He came up with a product three years before iTunes, seven years before. We ever had an iPhone. I mean, literally before there was digital music, he thought of this idea of wouldn't it be cool if you could wave your phone in the air, hear a song, and in 15 seconds, no matter where the song was playing, be able to know what that song is, access up that song, and be able to make that happen. And he did it. He did it in spite of every obstacle you can possibly imagine. And he ended up selling this business for $400 million to Apple. It's the fourth largest one. A billion people have downloaded this app. And today, if you have an iPhone, you can just say, Siri, what's this song? It's built into Siri as well. Ladies and gentlemen, please stand up, give a big hand to the co-founder of Shazam, Chris Martin. Chris, it's such a pleasure to meet you and a privilege to be with you. You've got a product that most of us around the world all are delighted by. I can probably remember the first time we ever used it. I certainly remember the first time I did. Driving a car, hearing a song <laughs> while I'm driving, clicking on Shazam and going, oh my God, this song by Pink, Funhouse. This is really cool. And I use music in all my events. So I'm always hearing music and I was always trying to gather, what is that? We call this, you know, this, the radio stations and say, what was that song? And now to have this at our fingertips. I want to know, before we get into the journey of Shazam, I'd like to know a little bit about you. Tell us you know, what it was like growing up, and what do you think created this belief inside of you that says, I can do things people say are impossible? <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. I guess I think growing up, similar to my son, I have undiagnosed dyslexia and ADHD, mm. and I had my own challenges of just kind of getting through basic academics. 
Um, and uh, so you'd have to kind of cope and come up with your own coping strategies and find your own Wait a second. Ways. Now, you just blew my mind, because didn't you go to Cambridge, and didn't you get a degree? What was your degree in Cambridge? Uh, uh, that was a master's in finance. In finance? Yeah. And you have dyslexia. Yeah. That's wild. Tell us, that's, tell that's us how you managed it, how you made it. You know, I remember when I was, I was an undergraduate at Berkeley, and I remember when I arrived, the first thing I did is I went and got the syllabus for each class, and I thought, okay, well, now which classes can I take that have the least reading involved? <laughs> um, and, uh, and so... At, and so I just kept pivoting towards majors and, and, and uh, focuses areas that had the least reading. Wow. Yeah, because it's That's such a challenge. Wild. So you, you had this dyslexia. Did it make you more creative then, do you think? Yes. I, I, so I teach my, this, my son this. And I, I, I've read about dyslexia and ADHD. And what's interesting about both of them is that while they make traditional academics a challenge and they make it hard to get good grades, so people like Charles Schwab and Richard Branson are dyslexic right. or are dyslexic, um, it's, uh, it, I really believe it gives you superpowers. That's um, awesome. In fact, they call the thinking of, of dyslexics, they call it big picture thinking, like an ability to kind of mm. see like orders of magnitude more variables at the same time and almost just have clarity about what's going to happen. Just think about that belief, everybody. When you take what everybody else tries to make a limitation and you see it as your superpower and you find its benefit, that's how your life changes. It shifts your identity. Once your identity shifts, your whole world shifts. Yeah. So you go to school, and what was your intention? What did you think you were gonna do? Were you entrepreneurial? Or? Uh, so, no, initially I, I, initially I did, I started at Berkeley as an engineering major, switched out of that to economics and business. Um, and I, I, I kind of did a traditional route. I did management consulting in my first years out of college. Um, and it, it wasn't really on my radar to start a company at that point. Mm -hmm. um, it was only when I was doing my MBA, I went back to Berkeley to do my MBA, still not realizing that I wanted to start a company. And it was actually in the first week of my MBA program, I was in the computer lab, and next to me was a, uh, a guy that was one year ahead of me in the second year of, his MBA, of the MBA. And I said, oh, what, what did you do before the MBA program here at Berkeley? And he said, oh, I was an Air Force pilot. And I thought, Air Force pilot, wow. And then, and then he said, I said, well, what are you doing now? He said, well, I'm starting a company. It actually ended up going public, that company, a real estate company called Zip Realty. And was, it, was it on the web? Was uh, it, a it was a web, an early web. Um, yeah, because yeah, this is in 2000, this is 1998. So oh, early wow, internet beginning. days, yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, he said, I'm starting a, a real estate internet company. And I thought, wow, an Air Force pilot is suddenly starting a company. And I thought, now I have no excuse because, I mean, I don't, you know, that's about as far as you can get, for, you know, in terms yes. of skill set, right? <laughs> right. Um, I mean, you know, I'm sure he's great at flying planes, yes. you know? Um, and so uh, it was very inspiring for me. And, and I kind of thought, wow, you can really just define your own path, you know? And you can, if you just want to do it, you just do it. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'm going to start a company as well. And did you have any idea what kind of company you wanted to start? Or when, did you start something before Shazam? No, I did not. So, um, wow, it was your first enterprise. It was my first company ever, yes. Wow. Up, up until then, I had just been a cookie-cutter management consultant, you know, just traditional, you know, check-in for a job and, and work hard, long hours. But, yeah, it never occurred to me to really start a company. And um, What yeah. was the aha moment where you got the idea for Shazam then? So... Okay, so it, basically we went through, so I, I first chose co-founders before we actually knew what business we were going to oh, start. Oh, you even knew what, before the company. Yeah, so we wow. thought, okay, well, let's start a company together. 
Um, and these but, were friends of yours and, or people you went out and got directly? No, they're actually friends, two friends. Okay. The fourth one was not a friend. We had to yeah. hunt him down. Yeah, the engineer. Um, yeah, exactly, the inventor. Um, but these, these two, one of them was a classmate in business school and one of them was just a friend from around the city, both talented guys. Um, and, and you're living, just to give everybody context, in the UK at the time. And so we were living, well, I was doing my MBA at Berkeley, oh, but yeah. then I was doing, a, 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 then I went out and did a semester at London Business School. And so I was in London, yeah, okay, correct. Got it. correct. Um, and so we were, and it was in, during that period when I was in London, doing an internship and so on at Microsoft, that I, we were in this, we, we were in this like, mode of, say, we're going to start a company. We have no idea what, but something. And we would literally meet at cafes in London and just brainstorm. We would just throw out ideas, write them down on paper. What were some of the early companies you considered? <sighs> you know, there was the one that the one that I thought about doing that uh, quite seriously for a bit was contact lenses, selling contact lenses and all eye-related care uh, on the web. Yes. Uh, and again, this is 1998. Yeah. So actually, had we done that, it would could have been very successful. I think 1-800 contacts became a huge business. Yeah, of course. It um, so it's a so. Uh, I just found that I, I couldn't get that excited about it. I kind of yeah. thought, can I wake up every morning going, need to sell contacts on the web? <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and as you know, you need to put in a lot of passion and energy to start yeah. a company. So the breakthrough idea actually with Shazam was not, hey, wouldn't it be great if you could identify a song with a mobile phone? Mm. That was not the breakthrough idea because actually there were about six companies doing that but that no one's doing what? They were all embarked on trying to identify songs with a mobile phone. Oh, interesting. Yeah, um, but one even was, though there were no real smartphones at that point, right? Right. This is early days. So, so it was one was Sony Corporation, and they had a little startup called eMarker. It was actually a device. That was not a phone. It was a little device you clicked. And um, and then there was one called uh, Gosh, I, I can't remember the names of these kind of companies now. That's okay. Music. But anyway, so basically. What they were all doing is doing the traditional thing that one would do when you start a business, which is just, okay, here's a business I want to start. How do I go about it? And so the, the logical thing, working with existing technologies and building something, was to monitor radio play. And so that's mm. what they were all doing. They were monitoring the radio stations. And then with these services, you'd say, I'm listening to this radio station, you know, 105.3. Right. And then you'd enter that on your phone. Um, and then they would tell you, okay, here's a song that's playing at this moment on the radio. Because that was technically feasible. We yeah. know what songs are playing on the radio. Yeah. It's not a hard problem to figure that out. Yeah. So the breakthrough of Shazam was that I was thinking about that business because it was early days and no one had really taken off yet. And I thought, um, wouldn't it be great to come up with something like that? But I was taking a class at London Business School called Strategic Innovation, taught by Costas Marquitas. And it was really encouraging you to think outside the box about everything, question everything. Yes. And, I, and I was thinking about, if I created a business where I would track what's going on in all these radio stations and it would be similar to these other startups, what could someone do that would leapfrog me, that would just leave me behind in the dust? Yes. That's the strategic innovation. So you thought in terms of your competitor if you were yeah. in that business. Exactly. What would just invest all these years building this business, what would just leave me in the dust and just make me irrelevant? And then that was, that was the breakthrough. Because then I thought, what if you could just identify the song like from the air? Not from the radio station. It's literally in the air. And then you wouldn't have to enter the radio station. And not only that, but it wouldn't just work for radio play. You'd use it in cafes, bars, clubs, movie theaters, yeah. you know, everywhere you go, right? Shopping malls, Ubiquitous. anywhere you hear a song. Because it's not just radio out there. Yeah. That's wild. You know, one of the things I try to teach all entrepreneurs is there's always two businesses you're running. The business you're in and the business you're becoming. 
And in order to be the business you're becoming, you've got to think about what would knock you off. I mean, you actually use that principle on your own. That's pretty awesome. Tell me, so you come up with the idea. You've got some initial partners. You start, as I understand it, to try to ask people, and they all say, it's impossible, which lights your fire, which I love. So tell us more about those early days when it's impossible, yeah. and then tell us how you got to your fourth partner, your engineer. Is it even? Avery. 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 Yeah. So yeah, so we, here we have this idea, and again, we're non-technical guys, the three of us, um, and so we're like, oh yeah, we'll just invent this technology. You know, you hold your phone up, and it's pattern recognition, and it will hear the sound over the phone, and these are ancient phones, right? This, yeah. is, in the year, this is in 2000. Um, and it will, will identify the song. Great, okay, so now how do we go about doing this? Go on to Google, type in a few things, a few queries, and we start to realize, okay, the people that are really advanced in this audio area, rec sort of pattern recognition, are basically, they're, they're people who have focused on electrical engineering with a focus on digital signal processing, with a focus on audio signal processing. Yes. And then it's among those people focused on audio signal processing, some people had a particular interest in music. Okay. And we find these people on the web, they've published papers, done various studies, and they typically had come out of places like MIT Media Lab or Stanford had a right. group called the Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics. And maybe in this program, two or three PhDs would graduate each year and, um, from, with a music PhD, music acoustics PhD. So we go out and we meet these guys, a few of them that we find, just reach out to them. And um, we're like, we have a top secret idea. We can't tell anyone but we need to invent this technology that can identify <laughs> songs on a mobile phone, okay? And um, they said, I'm sorry, this, this, that's just not possible. You know, I know every technology out there, um, I don't know of any way to do something like that. And the reason is because you're dealing with, in pattern recognition, when you combine two core challenges, and those, one is scale, a right. lot of music, and then the other one is noise. Yeah, because you're in a bar, you've got people talking and still being, and recognize a song at any point in the song too, right? any point in the song, and there could be all kinds of audio challenges and so on. You have, the phones have uh, vocoders that emphasize the human voice and de-emphasize all other sounds, mm. noise cancellation, just all these technologies working against you. Um, and it was just incredible. We would capture some of these sound samples and it would, you could barely hear the music. And so they just had no idea how to do it. Um, we, we finally found this professor who was kind of famous in this little circle of audio signal processing people. Professor Julius Smith at Stanford, he was famous because he had invented the algorithms behind the Yamaha, Yamaha synthesizers that oh, are wow. out there today in all Yamaha or all electronic keyboards. Yeah. Um, and so we went to him and he said, I, I have no idea how to do this either. But he said, I think it's a great idea and, I, and I'd be happy to be your advisor and help out. Wow. Um, and so the, his first project as advisor was I brought him a list of names. And I, I said, oh, I found all these names and they're pretty much, you know, they're all PhDs, mostly out of MIT and Stanford and Berkeley and so on. And I said, um, I need, we need a co-founder and we need him to be like a genius. Uh, and so he knew all the names because it's a small world. They go to yeah. the same conferences. Um, and I just said, can you just rank the five smartest guys on this list and just guys and gals yes. and, uh, and, and, and we, we're going to go after those people as our co-founder. And I want them to be people that, because clearly they're all very smart, right? They're all right. PhDs from MIT and so on. Um, but anyway, we said they need, we need them to be like an inventor, an mm. actually an abstract thinker. Yeah. Um, and uh, someone that was just going to go down to the core principles and really think about how can we invent this type of technology. And so on that list, we had a little list of the top five. And number one was this guy, Avery Wang, that had done his PhD under Julius. Um, he had uh, 
four or five degrees from Stanford in mathematics and electrical engineering. <laughs> How old was he? Uh, well, yeah, I think he's probably still 15 years old now. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. He was he's one of those math geniuses. I think now, you know, now he I don't know how old he is today, but he, he, was, he was a young guy. Wow. Um, but uh, yeah, just a genius. And um, so we went to meet him. We, we, we actually the only he told us later, the only reason he took the meeting with us is because we were referred by this professor. Right. But he, he went out and met us in a little cafe with over a burger in, in Silicon Valley. And we pitched our little deck to him and said, we need you to invent this technology. Uh, and he decided it was perfect timing because his own startup was failing. He needed something to do, and he said, "Why not?" So he didn't think it was impossible. Um, well, that, no, that is a problem. Yeah, he he actually did think it was impossible. He as still well. thought it was impossible, <laughs> but I'll give it a shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he thought I'd give it a shot. And the, one problem I faced is that he was, he was, he was he he kept facing kind of that brick wall feeling, like I'm not, I don't think I can do it. You know, he he was just he he would he was. Uh, Unsure whether it would be f possible, basically, and he, yeah. and I think he just didn't have he just didn't know if he could keep going because he was trying for months working with Julius to invent this, um, and actually Julius was such a positive you know I can we can do anything kind of guy that's awesome that I would I would organize a barbecue and then to keep my co-founder motivated I would say Julius and I think this is the professor he did his PhD under come right. over here Julius don't you think this should be possible it's got to be possible right and Julius would be like yes it does. And I thought it had to be possible. And so Avery would just feel the pressure because he's like, okay, they all have these expectations. <laughs> I better invent something. That's wild. And how long did it take before you got the first? Well, first of all, in order to do this at that time, there's no Spotify. There's no iTunes. So how did you build the database? Forget even the technology of the noise cancellation and all the other problems you would have. Yeah. How did you come up with a database that could be recognized? Yeah, so, because um, this is early days, right? Yeah, right. Of, so what year would this be? So this is uh, basically when we raised our angel round. That was the summer of 2000. Okay. Uh, and, um, and then our venture round a year later, um, seven and a half. And iTunes dollars. came in in what, 2004? So iTunes was about 2000, yeah, three or four around there. Yeah, and, and then I, the phone, iPhone's 2007. Seven and the App Store 2008. So you're like seven years before the phone, three or four years before iTunes. Yeah. And there's no database. In those days, you're buying stuff on CDs, on and, CDs. and ripping it? What, yeah. what did you do? Yeah. Like so, a song, if you went to a music store back then, I, I know because I was looking at the stats, they had about 200,000 songs yeah. you know, in total. Yeah. That's a lot of songs. Yeah. So how did you get 200,000 songs into a database? So we were, um, we, we, and we also had a limited amount of cap, capital. So How much did you raise, first of all? So we had $7.5 million, which is quite a lot of money. That's a tough but, raise. But to do, to do what we were trying to do, you needed a lot of money, um, especially when you're starting from scratch, because we had to build our own search engine as well from scratch. Did you go to VCs for that money? We went to VCs, yeah. And, and how, how many did you have to go to before somebody said yes? Uh, it was about over 100 VCs. Yeah. You went, oh, you give me a fist bump on that, brother. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, over 100 VCs tell them no. Oh, my God. Every, every great entrepreneur I've ever met, virtually, and I'm virtually, I'm sure there's some exception, who has made it, has always gone through 100, 200, 500, 1,000 no's, yeah. literally, to get to that point. That is the dividing line from reality of turn your dreams to reality or not. And I think I read somewhere, one of the VCs said to you something about no one would ever want to use this or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did they say? One of my favorite highlights. It was a, I won't name the VC, but um, <laughs> yeah, uh, it was a big VC. Uh, but yeah, we showed him the demo, you know, and at that point we had an actual demo and uh, identified a song and a text message came to the phone and he said, I don't see why anyone would ever use that. 
and and I I was like that just motivated me so much and I I just thought um, I, by the way I like to say um, have you ever heard the golden rule the r- golden rule is he who has the gold makes the, makes rules. the rules yes right. so um, the VCs make the rules that's right uh, was when you're an entrepreneur so you went through more than a hundred VCs you got guys telling it's gonna be worthless you kept going you get seven and a half million bucks which is not a lot of money for the level of tech you have to do at yeah. this stage. So tell us, how did you even build the database? Yeah, so basically what we ended up doing is we first built software from scratch that, that would run on PCs and it would basically r- rip CDs, take the fingerprints of the music. We, we use fingerprints from music, so it's mathematical descriptions of the sound. Okay. Um, and then we also, so we built, that, we built that software, then we hired about 25, 30, 18-year-olds to work three shifts, three eight-hour shifts, 24 hours a day, putting CDs into these computers, running our custom software, and, uh, and then basically typing the name of every song and the album title and the artist, because wow. that, that stuff is not... All by screen. hand. All by hand, 24 hours a day, so we could launch in less than nine months. Holy cow. And how many songs did you launch with? And we launched with 1.7 million songs. Oh, so it'd be bigger than any music store. Yeah. Yeah, it was, a, it, was probably, it was probably a good six or seven times that of, of the largest record stores at the time. Yeah, because even those days, you went to Virgin or HMV or places like that in London, here, Licorice Pizza, that kind of thing, yeah. Tower Records. Yeah. So literally, this was all done by hand. So then tell us the first version. How long did it take to get that first version? And if I read right, I think you were on Nokia with those little gray screens, and yeah. you could barely even text back then, right? Yeah, yeah. You could, I mean, all, really, all people did with phones was make phone calls and send text messages. The one innovative thing you could do on a mobile phone was download a ringtone. We all right, remember that. Right, and be right. like, oh, and it was a monophonic ringtone. Um, and so we were like one of the first services that you could be other than making phone calls or sending text messages. And did you think it was going to just explode? And what yeah. actually happened? Yeah, so I, I was convinced because you'd show it to people and they'd say, wow, I mean, it's like magic. They couldn't believe you'd hold this phone up in the air, this very rude, basic phone, and then for, after a few seconds, a text message would appear at this phone, and it would say the name of the song. You'd show this to people, and they'd be like, wow, that is incredible. And, um, except for that one VC, of course. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so we thought, right, once we launch this thing, it's just going to take off like, rock, you know, like a rocket or like wildfire. But the reality is, we had to have a business model at the time, and there was no advertising. You know, there was yeah. no, that wasn't even a graphical user interface. So we, our model was much like calling 411, which was each time you used it, you paid a small fee, okay. like 50 cents, 50 pence. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that was a, you know, a, bit of a, a bit of a problem, a bit of a hurdle to usage. But, but ultimately, we learned that just getting the word out is such a difficult thing. And it doesn't matter how great of an idea or great of a product you have, yeah. sometimes just getting the word out is, is so much harder than you realize. I worked at Dropbox and it was the same kind of thing. It's yeah. an amazing product, but getting the word out was just so, so difficult. So Plus, you were so far ahead of the time in terms of tech. Ray Kurzweil is a good friend of mine. He's one of the, I'm sure you know, one of the greatest inventors of our time. And his great skill is being able to tell you 10 years from now what can be done. He doesn't know which tech will do it, but he knows based on compounding where it's going to be. And you have this vision. How did you know that we were going to go to smartphones? How did you know this was going to occur? Like, what gave you that insight when people are still just using a phone to make phone calls? I think it was just, I, I was, I had myself during business school had bought my first mobile phone, regular okay. mobile yep. phone. Um, like a flip phone in those a, days? A flip phone, yeah. yeah, yeah. I bought it on eBay. I, I forgot what kind of brand it was, but uh, I don't think it was even Nokia. But anyway, um, I bought that and I kind of thought, 
I could just feel how everyone was getting mobile phones. It was just happening. Do you, do you remember yeah. that day when suddenly it went from being, you know, a third of your friends had phones to suddenly like everyone had phones, all very rapidly in just a right. year or two. And I just thought, all these people are going to be walking around with phones. They need something to do. There's got to be something they can do with these phones. And, yeah. and that was definitely a contributor towards the Shazam concept, was like, is, we're going to do something that everyone can do with a phone, not just your computer, yeah. but something that's going with you everywhere you go. So when you got a Nokia, you do this first exposure. It's hard to get the word out. Um, you thought it would take off. It obviously didn't at the level you'd hoped. Were you able to make money at that I mean, yet? We were, or were struggling. We, still in we, were, we were really struggling. We we had a marketing budget that was part of the seven and a half million dollars, and we had we made web banner ads, radio ads. We even hired people to walk into bars and just tell people about Shazam. Yeah. Um, so we were doing everything you can. Our first market was the UK. Um, and we, when, we were, when we launched, we were usable by anyone with a mobile phone. So Because it was just all you needed a phone that could make a, f a phone call and get a text message, which was all phones. Right. So you didn't need some kind of advanced phone to, to use Shazam. But we, we learned that just the amount you spend on marketing to get, make, drive awareness to someone was just more than the little bit of money that we made every time someone Shazammed. And so we struggled. We barely survived. We, we actually had two rounds of layoffs. We probably were near bankruptcy for the entire six-year period between launching in 2002 and the App Store coming out in 2008. And I, I read somewhere, I think in 2003 or four, like two or three of your partners left the company. Yeah. And then I know, you did you simultaneously, I read that you went to work at Google, yeah. you were interested in innovation, and also you just mentioned, um, um, what do you call it, Box, um, Dropbox. Dropbox, yeah. Was that happening simultaneously? So you were trying to fun yeah. manage both these well, things? So basically, uh, I, my full-time role, I moved over to Google, and, and that was 2004, when it was an interesting 2,000-person company. And it's right before it went public, right? Right a few months before it went public, yeah. yeah. Um, and then I, I just, my main role on Shazam was a board member. I, I was the okay. hardest working board member, because uh, <laughs> I was working 20 hours a week on top of my Google job. Uh, oh to, and for many, many years, just doing everything I can to try to make this baby a success. And then you went to Dropbox. Tell me, what are the lessons, if I may ask, yeah. what stood out to you from your experience at Google? Did any of that help you later as, a, as an entrepreneur in innovation? And then same thing with Dropbox. What did you learn there? Yeah, it was, I learned so much at both places. I mean, just the, uh, the way those two businesses went around about building, a, taking a, a core disruptive technology and then making it so addressable to such large numbers of users in a scalable way and really being at the forefront of technology adoption and technology development. Uh, it was just fascinating. I mean, I, I was lucky enough, when I joined Google, my job was, I was a business development guy, a partnerships guy, I'm non-technical. Wow. So I, my job was mobile, mobile partnerships. I was actually oh, the first perfect. mobile partnerships guy at Google. And so I had to do the relationships with AT&T and Verizon, but also you know, European companies like Vodafone and, and, and Nokia and Finland and so on. Um, and, uh, but just being in that environment, it, I learned so much about think, how you think as a business long term. Yeah. Um, and uh, from the founders, the way that the founders at Google would approach everything like it was a clean slate. You know, they, they would say, right down to, you know, how do we hire people? What do we say in the interviews? You know, how do we motivate people? How do we choose who to promote? Everything, they would just basically throw out all the, the standard stuff and then start from scratch. And Everything is innovation, even down to how to recruit people. Yeah. That's really amazing. And what about Dropbox? What did... Dropbox is also amazing. I, I just think that company is just so amazing as an example of how Drew and Arash thought about the problem. Yes. Because if you think about it, basically, they were also like Shazam, was, there were many music recognition 
attempts before. There were multiple attempts at cloud-type services before Dropbox, and none of them took off because they were clunky experiences where you had to download a piece of software, and then every time you wanted to upload a file, you would click upload, and every time you wanted the file back, you would click download. Yeah. And so they and 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 they kind of said, okay, we're not going to even think about the cloud problem. We're going to give that to Amazon. Let Amazon do all the cloud stuff. We're going to focus on the front-end experience and just make it seamless. And so, and the, and the way they did that is basically by conquering synchronization. Mm. Um, and synchronization is one thing they conquered, and the second thing is integration with a file and folder system so that you can yes. really look like a, your own folder. And, so, and they did that so well that basically now you just had a folder on your computer. If, it, if you put a file in there, it was in Dropbox. It was in the cloud. No upload or no download. And one early Dropboxer once said to me, he said, Chris, we had zero steps, and all our predecessors had one step click upload or click download, right? And he said, and Chris, the difference between zero and one is infinite. Wow. Well, it's, I always talk about uh, to our team that complexity is the enemy of execution, right? You make it too complex. You've took something unbelievably complex that have made it so simple for the user. I mean, that seems to be the secret of Dropbox, certainly for Google, certainly what you did as well. I'm curious, how did you keep the business funded when you're having to do layoffs and things and keep it going and there's no real distribution channel? How did you do it? Did you go to more money, more VCs? Did, no, you, you know, that would have been, that would have never worked, as you said. I was going to say, I don't imagine them giving you any money at that stage. Yeah, yeah, and you would dilute to the point of uh, non-existence. Um, but l luckily what we did, and this is something that I encourage so many entrepreneurs to think about, is that we found an easier way. I always like to say revenue is like oxygen. You need oxygen to survive. You need to keep breathing. You need revenue to survive as a startup, to, to, bring, to bring something in, to pay the bills. You can't just keep relying on funding. And sometimes the revenue can come, the easier way to get revenue is to go after something that might be a parallel to your core business. Okay. Um, and so for, for Shazam, we built a service to just monitor radio stations. Because it turns out, oh. isn't that interesting? Because we yeah. found out that we had an amazing, highly efficient technology, and there were companies that wanted to, monitor, wanted to know what was playing on the radio. In fact... Kind of monitor their competition? Is that Well, what? actually, no. So uh, ASCAP and BMI pay out oh, okay. a billion dollars. So they get dollars. paid. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, even smarter. Wow. And they pay out a billion dollars a year to artists for all their royalties. Yep. And up until back then, they were estimating what's played on the radio. They had people just listening to radio stations, writing it down, and then listening to 1% of radio play and then projecting that up to 100%. It was very, very archaic. Wow. So they ended up licensing our technology, and that brought in millions of dollars in revenue. Did so it make you profitable at that stage, or did you keep the doors open? It didn't make us profitable, but it brought money in. And then actually what we ended up doing is selling that business for a big chunk of money. Wow. And that money that came in then funded the company for several years. Wow. Uh, the name Shazam, where does it come from? And I heard that a lot of people want to talk you out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about that. Yeah, so, uh, so basically, when I came up with the idea for Shazam, I thought, you know, it's going to be, people are going to hold their phone up in the air, and then they're going to know the name of the song. And that just felt like magic. It really felt like magic. Yeah, still, you know? I think. Yeah, and, and it's, like, it's like, wow, how can that be? And so... Um, Shazam actually has been, it's a, it's a comic series, you know, it's, it's been used, it's actually originally, I think, Arabic folklore it comes from, and it actually means to conjure magic. Wow. Um, and so in the, in the old uh, Billy Batson comic series, this little boy would say, 
Shazam! And a lightning bolt would strike down from the sky and he would become a, a superhero. Yes. Um, and it's been used in other contexts similar. Well, it matched your whole identity as a superhero. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's exactly. awesome. But people try to talk you out of it, I heard. Well, so one of my co-founders, this is, the, this is one of the things you learn for everyone here who has co-founders. You're not always going to agree on everything in life uh, right. and everything in your business, and that's going to be one of the struggles. And uh, so one of my co-founders is uh, an amazing guy. I always like to say he has this, the productivity of 10 superhumans. Wow. Um, but he, he just said, oh, yeah. That name is terrible. He's like, that's a terrible name. We've got to get rid of that, you know. And it wasn't just him, by the way. I had VCs as well. We'd pitch to them, and they have the gold, and uh, and yeah. and they would say, oh, but you gotta gotta change that name. Can't you call it something like Identify Song or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something really emotional. <laughs> something that moves you, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. But how did you? Do you just persisted and then? Yeah, and I and I was very nervous because at one point after raising the venture money. We hired this big marketing guy who had run all of marketing for Capital Radio Group, which is the largest radio group in the UK. And uh, he said, okay, now we're going to hire an agency and we're going to evaluate what name to use for launch. And I kind of thought, oh no, don't give up on Shazam. I just felt so just emotionally attached to it. Yeah. And luckily, he concluded, oh, you guys have made enough traction with this name so far, even before launching. Oh, okay, with got partners, it. We're going to stick with it. And I, I was like, oh, thank you. Continuity saved you. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me, when did you know it was going to work? When was the breakthrough? Was it iTunes? When did, when did the breakthrough happen for you? And then how did you get tied up with Apple? Yeah, so the day the App Store launched was definitely the day, and from that day forward. And you were on it from the very first day? Uh, yes, from day one, Shazam was an app. In fact, um, Apple wanted to showcase amazing things that would show off their new phone. Remember, right. the iPhone had been out a year. Right. So during that year, they, they were reached out to various companies, a small set of companies, some of them gaming companies, for example. Um, and they kind of thought, okay, what are great showcase apps that we can co-develop, actually? Even give, they provided guidance on what it could look like and so on. Um, and, uh, and so Shazam was right out the gate at the op opening of the App Store. There was Shazam. And they Im immediately had this concept of ranking apps based on popularity. Right. And Shazam, and then the App Store just grew and grew and grew and grew and grew with more and more apps and more and more people and more and more phones. And there Shazam just stayed there in that top 20 or even top, you know, top 100. It varied by country and time. But it just always remained one of the most popular apps. Uh, wow. and, um, and so I remember uh, in those first few years, the App Store, uh, Apple would produce reports. And they'd, they'd publicly release and say, here are the top most downloaded apps. And you'd see like... Google Maps right. and, and you know uh, Skype and so on Facebook. And, and Facebook and and then there was Shazam and uh, I have to I have to admit I did reach out to that venture capitalist by the way um, and when, and I said it turns out people will use this <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> I love that. How, how did he respond to that? Did he laugh? <laughs> he was, yeah, he did. Actually, at that time, I was working at Google, and he came out. He said, let's have lunch, and we had lunch, and we just laughed about how it's just you can't predict the future. Right? Yeah. You can't predict the future. And, uh, yeah, we, it was great. It was great. Okay, so um, that was all precursors, really good storytelling, and I love the, the little spite that he had with the VC. Uh, it's definitely something that he deserved and earned. Um, but the real story comes here with the business model innovation. Again, that's the theme of this week, which is technology and business model impact and how uh, aligning interests can maybe uh, create opportunities that wouldn't. Uh, and the real question is, is here, uh, you know, picture this, you're in... Um, in a situation where it's 2002 and you're trying to start the first uh, Shazam 
and nothing's been digitized. Everything's in uh, CDs and you have to cover all music in existence. How do you do it? Chris, you showed uh, the picture with all of these CDs and I thought uh, that's such a huge task. So uh, how did you start to go for it? Did you buy the CDs? Oh, what did you did you do? I think uh, you always be in front of such a huge task and you don't get started. So are the 1.5 million or 1.7 million songs, in yeah. other words, did you go buy all these CDs you sang? Yeah. Did you, how'd you do it? Yeah, so um, this actually, it's, uh, so I, I like to talk about this concept I call creative persistence. Right? Yes. And, um, and so it's because all entrepreneurs will all have to be persistent. Right. But I think what's really important is this kind of This, this bringing them together, creative persistence, where you're, not, you're being persistent, but you're also really thinking outside the box and thinking of unique ways to solve a problem. I saw this go on a lot at Google and Dropbox when they solved so many different things. Like when they ingested all the books in the world for Google book search, they invented a thing that just turns pages of books so they could scan oh. them all in a, oh. in a scalable way. But um, so... In the case of the CDs, we thought, oh, we're this startup and we have a limited amount of funds and we need this much for marketing and this much for hiring and so on. Right. And, uh, and so we thought, how we, it turns out the, the number of CDs that we needed, this is the number of total CDs available in the UK market, is 100,000 CDs. So if we had bought that, let's call it at the time $10 a CD, right? that's, that's yeah. a million dollars. Yeah. And that's a lot when you're a startup and you only have a certain amount of funding. So uh, the creative part of our persistence is that we went to the company that was the biggest distributor of CDs at the time. So it was actually had more, about four or five times as many CDs as the biggest record stores, which wow. had about 15,000 unique CDs in stock at a time. This, had, this company called, had 100,000 CDs. And we said, wouldn't you love to have a digital copy of all those CDs? Because the world is becoming digital, right? It's 2000. Wow, smart. And, uh, and, then, and, 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 then, and then, so we literally formed a partnership where we co-located at their warehouse outside of London, had our 25 to 30 18-year-olds located at their site, going into the warehouse, picking a CD from those racks, pulling it out, putting it in the computer, typing them in the songs, and then returning it. And, then, and they didn't charge us a penny for that relationship. Wow. Because it was a, it, we shared the outcome with them. What I love is that some people just persist asking for something, but you found a good way to add value. And when you add value with that kind of creativity, that's brilliant. I'm so glad you asked the question, Barbara. Give her a hand. Thank you very much. All right, that's it for the lessons. Um, it's interesting if you listen to the full podcast, which I do encourage, uh, what he's choosing to do after selling out for $400 million. Um, you know, a man that rich, like he can just kind of retire and uh, live his life. But he's choosing to start a new business, and it's about pool safety, like swimming pool safety. Uh, it's a pretty interesting story, and I think a worthwhile one. Like, you don't have another hit like Shazam in you, probably, uh, for the rest of your life. So you might as well save lives.